humans are a bundle of contradictions. We can be shockingly mean to one another and disarmingly kind. We've always recognized this duality about ourselves, but there is a contention of folks out there that say that our cruel parts are our animal parts and that we are hardwired to push and shove and not to share. Any evidence of a sweeter, gentler side, they say, comes from our having been taught to do that, perhaps even coerced into it by parents, teachers, our culture. In short, they would say that when it comes to humans, kindness does not come naturally. In the past, people pointed to the animal world for evidence, what Thomas Hobbes referred to as the state of nature. Hobbes is famous for having posited the memorable line that without society and governance and artificial constraints on our behavior, life would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That was over 400 years ago, and while we humans haven't physically evolved or changed significantly, Hobbes' DNA is basically still our DNA, Science has learned more about that so-called state of nature, and in particular, how animals live and act. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. We help each other because it's in our biology to do so. Scientists are showing us that other types of animals besides humans care about those who suffer and at their own peril, and even when it requires sacrifice, they'll go to great lengths to help another animal. My name is Peggy Mason, and I'm a professor of neurobiology at the University of Chicago. Peggy studies empathy, and her animal of choice, the one where these discoveries were made about empathy, is rats. In a previous episode, we talked about the incredible similarity of the DNA of rats with humans and how the fact that we are so much alike is why medical labs use mice and rats as our stand-ins as test subjects. Peggy Mason has found that rats demonstrate empathy and are telling us a lot about our own kinder selves. We are just fancy rats. There's a huge evolutionary tree where all out on the same twig, a millimeter or two away from the rat, and all we've got is a slightly enlarged cerebral cortex. When a human being passes another human being, let's say a homeless person who looks to be suffering, there is a tug to help that person. Yes. And to not help them takes an active girding almost of your emotional self against helping. And that's what the lesson of rats helping is, that we are just the same as rats. We feel we want to help another in distress. It's not that helping takes an action. That's an automatic. That's our biological mammalian inheritance is to help. It's not helping. That is the weird thing. So let's talk about you and how you figure this out. Set the stage. You've got a lab at the University of Chicago. Like what, what's in there? Is it just a desk? Are there containers in there with rats? So what does your lab look like? Rats don't live in, in labs. Rats live in special places. So rats have pretty 
deluxe accommodations. They have to have, for example, so many air changes per hour. Um, so they live in their accommodations and we occasionally ask them to come visit us. We have a wet lab part of the lab and we have essentially a lot of behavioral arenas is what we call them. Okay. There are spaces where rats can go and, and interact and we can film them that the filming is remote. Although we have very fond feelings for the rats, they really never get too, too fond of us. Do you remember the first time that you ever worked in a lab that used animals? As a kid. As a kid. Okay. My mother is a very pushy mother, scientifically <laughs> minded. Uh -huh. Yes. I lived in Washington, D.C. or in the area. And she took me, I think at age six, to oceanography to an oceanography class. They did classes, Smithsonian oh did these classes. So she took me down to this class and I said, oh, okay. I think it was around the time I was seven, she took me to Charles Handley, who was the curator of mammals at the Smithsonian, Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. He ran a Saturday class to teach taxidermy to kids. No kidding. And so she took me to do taxidermy with Dr. Handley and I loved it from the get go. And by the time I was maybe, I don't know, nine or so, I was teaching. You were teaching taxidermy at age yeah. nine? Yeah. And I ended up going to Panama when I was, I guess, about 20, 21. I spent three months in Panama tagging bats with Dr. Hanley. It was in the Panama Canal. So we were in, on an island called Barro, Colorado Island, which is in the middle of the canal. And it's owned by the Smithsonian, called the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. We had 10 nets. I got rabies shots before I got there. I got <laughs> prophylactic rabies shots. And we'd set up these nets. And without gloves, we would take the bats out of the... They would get caught in the nets. They couldn't echolocate. They couldn't find the little, the fine fiber that the nets were made of. So they get caught in it. We take them out. We put them in these canvas bags and hang them on a stick and then we would weigh them. We would, the his interest in that year was about parasites. So we'd pick off the parasites and he would do something with the parasites, which I never knew about. And um, we'd sex them and we'd find out whether they were pregnant or do all this sort of demographic information on them. And then we'd release them again. That's amazing. I love it that you got that from such an early age. But at that point, you were in your 20s. You're looking at bats in Panama at the Smithsonian's field research station in the middle of the canal. Were you already studying biology in college at that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. I was okay. studying biology, but I hadn't fixed on neurobiology yet. Mm -hmm. My original thought was to be in wildlife management. So neurobiology really started as its own discipline in like the 1970s around there? Yeah, okay. around 70, uh -huh. late 70s, early 80s uh -huh. was when, for example, the Society for Neuroscience was started. So where did you go to graduate school and what did you start studying? When I graduated, I, I continued on at Harvard. And so I ended up going into something called pain modulation, which means how you perceive a noxious stimulus, something that is injurious to you, will depend. It'll depend on whether you're running a race and you have a blister all of a sudden, who cares? Or whether you're at the 15th mile of a long, long hike and you're really tired and you haven't had anything to eat and you're cold and you're exhausted and you have a blister. It's the same blister. Or Another example is when you get a, a vaccination shot. If you watch people, some people just 
they're continuing their conversation. They don't blink an eye. They're, they can be smiling. They can be happy. They can be neutral. And other people think it's the end of the world and are close to crying or actually crying. But it's the same stimulus. So it's a way in which our brain will modulate the response to one single stimulus. So it's affected by the context. It's very affected by the context. You're known for your work with rats that has studied their capacity for empathy. Tell us about that study. I got an email from a woman named Inbal Benami Bartal, and she was a graduate student with my colleague in psychology, Jean Decidi. And she had been working with Jean on these various projects about human empathy, because that's what Jean is interested in. And before coming to graduate school, she had worked with rodents. And after a couple of years of working with humans and, and their version of empathy, she got kind of tired of humans. And she wanted to look at the biological basis of empathy. And to do that, you basically, you know, is there a biological basis? Well, what do you do? You strip away culture, you strip away instructions, and you get to a non-human animal. And she chose rats. And, and you're so she, right. I think most people would think immediately think empathy belongs only to humans. humans. Right. And I think that you know, that was even, it was sort of obviously wrong, but it was still a popular notion. Okay. Um, so you get this call so get from this, this woman I saying, this I want to study email rats. from her, and I sort of jumped at it. There's a lot about pain and empathy. So if I watch somebody who I care about undergoing, going through, apparently going through pain, I will activate parts of my brain that also are activated when I experience pain. So there's this incredibly fascinating literature on pain empathy. I said, yeah, and I think I went over that day. Her idea actually was that one animal was gonna be hungry, was gonna be food deprived, and another animal was gonna realize that this animal was hungry and give it food. I said, well, that won't work, but, but go ahead, try it. And so to do that, she had to keep the animal that was food deprived away from the food. So she put it in this little tube. Okay. So she puts the little tube in the middle of the thing and she puts the, the there's food available for the free rat and she's looking for the free rat to shove food into the trapped rat's trap. That doesn't happen. But what she sees immediately is that the free rat is crazed by this seeing the trapped rat trapped and digs at the at the tube and climbs on it and is just freaked out. And she comes up and she tells me that. And so we say, oh, okay, that's good. That means that the free rat cares about the trapped rat. But then it took us a, a long time, an embarrassingly long time to design a door that only the free rat could open. Peggy and Inbal Bartel Built on that experience and their eventual successful experiment consisted of this. Two rats are in an arena, being filmed. One is trapped in a transparent plastic tube in the middle. The other rat is untethered and unconstrained. Normally, when a rat is in the arena or any type of room, what is natural is for it to hug the edge along the walls. A rat's instinct tells it, I am safest along the wall. A small rodent isn't going to meander out into the middle of a field out in the open because that's where it could be picked off by a hawk or some other predator. 
But in Peggy's empathy experiment, the free rat does not stay safely around the perimeter. It goes right into the danger zone, into the center of the arena where the trapped rat is. The free rat recognizes that the other rat is in jeopardy. And so even though the free rat is taking a risk, a predator could easily catch it there in the middle, exposed like that, the free rat sets its own personal safety aside and it becomes determined to set the other rat free. We knew we had it when we saw that the rats would spend all this time in the middle. We knew it was sort of, you know, to use an expression, it was all over but the clapping. Now all we had to do is get the clapping. We had to get this, some door that they could open so they could tell us in a more demonstrative way that they cared. But we knew they cared because they would just go zipping into the center and they won't do that for an empty restraint, you know, an empty tube or for a tube that has, say, an Ikea toy rat. So it wouldn't do it for a toy rat. Do you remember the first time that it finally got the door open? That was very exciting when the, when the door finally worked. And it, it took us a good six months. The rats will do this not just for a rat that's their personal child or a family member or a rat they know well that's their buddy. They'll do that for a total stranger, right? The initial paper that we put and that was published in Science and got a lot of publicity was all with cage mates. The rat will not tell me, I love my cage mate, I hate my cage mate. I don't know. I don't know exactly how the rats feel about each other, but they are familiar and that they've lived together for a long time. And so one of the first questions that people asked us is, what about for strangers? At the time, the human literature is very biased towards the idea that we don't have empathy for strangers, we have empathy for familiars. An idea which I now find fairly bizarre, given that we give to charities all the time. Charities are built on having uh, sympathy and empathy for perfect strangers. We help strangers, even at a cost to ourselves, even at the cost of our own lives. People help strangers all the time. I it remember depends. my mother and father were big on always pulling over if somebody was stopped alongside the road and looked like they were on in distress back in the days before cell phones. That was something they would do regularly. And there was nothing, there was nothing, no benefit in it for them. They're just going to, it's just going to slow them down on their, whatever their trip is, but they couldn't, they couldn't leave it alone. I, I just met a woman who, as it turns out, um, my mother was in a, in a car accident in, in her late eighties and she had blood dripping off of her nose and the door was open and this person, this woman, Jessica, stops for her. And she sits with my mother as the ambulance comes. And then my mother, I mean, this is a two to tango thing. My mother says to her, would you go to the hospital with me? And she says, yes. And now she's a family friend. You know? That's a beautiful story. Yeah, and I think you're right. And I it's... asked her, I said, why did you stop? She says, I just thought, you know, that could be my mother. That's somebody's mother or somebody's grandmother. And I said, well, thank you very much. Right. <laughs> I mean, people display that all the time. It yeah. is interesting that the literature would be biased against that. But the data are also certain data, certain things you will only do for familiars. Think about, you know, will you give me, will you give me $5 so I can go get a candy bar? Okay, well, yes, if you're somebody's child or friend, good friend, but not if you're a perfect stranger, no. Right. But 
will you, you know, will you go in there if the bridge has just collapsed on this person's car and they're about to die? Well, you don't care whether you know them or not. You're going to go in there and try and help. So helping is what I would call a very large parameter space. And we're studying one version. One rat is trapped in a little tube. He doesn't want to be there, but he's not freaked out, distressed. He just would prefer not to be there. And so the rats consistently try, and many of them succeed in learning how to open up the door to free the rat that's in distress. Wasn't there a component also that involved chocolate at one point? Right. So what happened actually was we had this, instead of having one tube, we had two tubes. One had chocolate and one had um, the trapped rat, a trapped rat. And so the chocolate was um, these little Hershey's pieces. And we had already, they, we had tested them in the, in an average session, one of these rats would eat seven of them and in a sitting. And we put five of them into the tube. So another way that uh, rats are like humans, they also like chocolate. (laughs) Yes. So then they had the choice. They can open the tube that has the chocolate. They can open the tube that has the trapped rat, or they could open both. And what they do is they open both. And they sometimes open first for the chocolate. Sometimes they open first for the trapped rat. And so what that tells you is that chocolate and helping are essentially on a par. Part of the reason that we do good things for others is it does make us feel good. Absolutely. So are they getting some kind of a dopamine rush or we don't know? I think that's right. I think they get an internal reward, and I would call that the warm glow of helping. And that makes a lot of evolutionary sense because, in fact, in social groups where individuals help each other, they're more cohesive and they're going to be better off at finding food, avoiding predators, finding shelter, and raising their young. Other scientists had found out cool things about rats before these experiments started. Rats vocalize and have a vocabulary with different sounds for different objects in their environment. And rats even laugh. They emit these high-pitched sounds that are only audible using the same equipment scientists use to listen to bats. And the rats do it when they're being tickled or engaging in silly play. And the sound they produce has the same cadence to it that human laughter does. And even before Peggy and Inbal did the experiments on empathy, it was already known that rats were quite social throughout their lives and that rats share their emotional states. If one rat is nervous, another rat is likely to seem nervous, even if nothing is particularly wrong with it. Basically, what we knew was that one rat could catch the emotion of another rat. But what Inbal wanted to do was to say, okay, great, you can catch it. That's an internal experience. Who cares? What can they do with it? Can they use it to motivate behavior? And for them to actually use it to do something, to not freak out, but to do something such as help another rat open a door, that's, that was the big finding. That's a big deal. It is a big deal, and it reminds me of other findings that have just expanded our old knowledge, which I think was rooted in some kind of a Judeo-Christian tradition of that idea that humans are exceptional. And um, I think about all of these things that humans claimed were only their own, like we were the only ones that ever used tools and uh, we're the only ones that experience pain. And those were all very convenient things for us to think. (laughs) 
and a way that sort of allowed us to mistreat animals or to treat animals as if they were very different and that we were exceptional in some way. Um, and so I just love that this finding that another animal would have as lovely of an emotion as empathy. I think that human exceptionalism is one of the world's least interesting topics. You know, I could say, let's study rat exceptionalism. There are things that rats do that other species don't do. There are things that every species does really, really well. Right. Or octopus exceptionalism. Octopus is, is, is a great, ex I mean, their, their ability to, um, to do their color thing is amazing. Uh, all the cephalopods. But yeah, I don't find human exceptionalism a particularly uh, intellectually interesting topic. Well, let me ask you this. So compassion has been defined as our propensity to relieve the suffering of another person. And of course, a rat isn't the same as a person. But is it fair to say that the rat displayed compassion for the other rat? I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure. So the rat does help the other rat. We did this experiment where we gave the free rat a drug, a drug that's very similar to, uh, say, Xanax. Okay. It's a benzodiazepine. It's a chill pill. And if the free rat can't feel emotion, can't feel distress, it doesn't help. It does not help. You mean it doesn't help the other rat? And it does not help the other rat. So the, the, there's an absolute criticality that the free rat has to feel a, at least some degree of distress. The same is not true. We haven't published this second part, but the same is not true for the trapped rat. The trapped rat does not have to. We can give him him a chill pill, and the free rat will still help. It what do you does. Think of that? It does more for the free rat than it does for the trapped rat. Helping is in your brain. If I do an action, I open the door for somebody. I think I'm helping them. I feel I want to help them, but they're in fact insulted. What do you think I'm old? Or what do you think I can't do it? So every action, if somebody kills somebody, that seems like a bad thing. But if somebody is at the end of life and they're in great pain and you kill them, that is arguably a merciful thing to do. So actions have no, what I would call valence. They have no good or bad that's intrinsic to them. It's how you see it. Surgeons cut into people all the time. They're hurting them, but they're doing a good thing. So... The action is beneficial to the recipient, but how it's intended and how it's received, I think, are mysteries. You observe the rat's actions, but not its thoughts. I'm not 100% sure that the rat likes the rat that it's helping. I think it feels very proud of having made this effect on the physical world, of getting this guy out. Likes that. The trapped rat who's free doesn't appear to care. When the trapped rat gets out, he starts to run around the arena because he hasn't really had a chance to explore the arena. And the free rat follows him, jumps on him, and licks him. It is never, never, ever the other way around. The trapped rat that is now freed never has any actions that are directed towards the free rat that just got him freed out. So I don't know that, I mean, it's a rat version of empathy. I think it is uncomfortable for the free rat to see this distress. So possibly it's relieving its own distress. 
Yes, but but that's the cute trick that evolution did is to yoke our distress. Yes. So that we can live together and relieve each other's distress and we'll be better off as a group. Getting along and having social cohesion is something that mammals more broadly and and probably animals more broadly need to to have to survive. So I I'm willing to concede that I don't know what the rats are feeling. I'm also willing to concede that I don't know what you are feeling. I'm even willing to concede that I don't know what I'm feeling. <laughs> so this the, this introspection and this self-report are overblown, but the helping aspect of it, the behavioral aspect of it is very crystal clear. And these are actions that the rats do, and they do it again, and they do it again, and every time they do it, they do it at a sh- you know after a shorter time, what we call a shorter latency, and so it looks to be a reinforcing behavior, something that they like to do. What do you think about when you're going about your urban life in the city, you teach at a university that's right in the part of the third largest city in the United States? What do you see that humans are doing that you see differently as a neuroscientist than what the rest of us perceive? I have a neuroscience lens that I use all the time. If you take two strangers and you have them play Guitar Hero for <laughs> for 30 minutes together, now all of a sudden they act as though they're familiar. So the question is, what is the version of Guitar Hero for rats? That makes them feel as if they're friends. It makes them feel as though that's, a, that's the kind of rat I want to help. It makes me... I've got to say I'm interested in your rat question, but also can I just say that I just love the idea that all it takes is 30 minutes of Guitar Hero to make us feel like somebody is somebody that we would go to the map for and exactly. help save. I love exactly. that. that. That makes me feel hopeful about human beings. Oh, I think I think we can be hopeful. I mean, I think the rat stuff also tells us to be hopeful. You've spent a long time steeped in the scientific method and thinking as a scientist. How do you think that's affected your brain? <laughs> Do you think you see the world somewhat differently than those of us who have oh, had that exposure? I totally see the world differently. Mm-hmm. Tell me a couple of things about that. Like, how how is that? Through the years, I've become just less judgmental. I'm just, you know, I know people are just doing what their brains are allowing them to do. The idea of culpability, the idea of responsibility is a little overblown for me. It's quite overblown. I think that we need to, in a legal sense, we need to protect ourselves. We need to protect society from people who are dangerous. But punishing people for things that they've done holds zero value to me because I just don't think that that's a a neurobiologically supportable viewpoint. I think that if if I tell you that somebody who just murdered somebody had a brain tumor, you'll say, oh, well, that's okay. They're not really responsible. Or if I tell you that somebody has Alzheimer's and cheated on their wife or did something or, or hit somebody, again, you'd say they're not in their right mind. It's They're not responsible. And those are just extreme versions of what all of us have all the time. We have our brains, that's what we got, and we act out. There may not be an obvious brain tumor, and there may not be uh, a disease that we've named, such as Alzheimer's, 
but we all are stuck with the brain that we have and to blame people and to shun them because of that is it just makes no sense so that has really colored my that colors how i view people and that comes directly from my thinking of neurobiology there's a lot of ways in which you can use neurobiology to look at the world thanks so much for coming in and sharing your world with us this is jill riddell And I hope this conversation with Peggy helps you to see empathy in you and around you in a new way. Next week, we'll be speaking with the educator Sylvie Anglin and discussing nature education in schools. We are dependent on the natural world. If we want to have a future, we have to care for what we have. We have to take care of the world around us. The way that we get children to care about what they're going to have to care about eventually because there's going to be problems they're going to have to solve. We have to get them to love that. Until then, enjoy your wild mammal self, including the part that can't help but be kind. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce the story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find The Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. There, you'll find images from Peggy's lab and a drawing of Peggy by the artist Rose Curley, and much more. Shape of the World's producer is Ari Mejia. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Peggy Mason, and the University of Chicago.